Good morning, church family. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 11. We will pick up where we left off last week in verse 12 and together consider through uh, the end of this chapter this morning as you find your place and get yourself uh, settled. I want to remind you that tonight is our first third Sunday evening worship service. Uh, We've been telling you about this for the last few weeks Uh, Our elders discussed back uh, in the fall uh, of this year instituting a once a month Sunday evening service uh, as an opportunity for us to gather again uh, together, first and foremost, because we like being around each other and we like worshiping the Lord and studying his word together. And this will give us an additional time a month to be able to do that. But it will also provide an opportunity for us to do some things on Sunday evenings that we don't always have time to do on Sunday mornings. And so this evening, um, I'm going to talk about what I'm going to preach this evening in a brief sermon. Sunday night sermons are going to be about 15 minutes long, and I'm going to talk about that in the midst of the the text today. Uh, But you're going to be able to hear and pray for um, the Bear Foundation. We're going to hear a report of what happened at their Christmas party that we supported. Uh, We're going to get to uh, hear an interview of those that are leading our Mission Great Expectation discipleship groups through the Crisis Pregnancy Center. We're going to pray for other ministries in our church. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper together. Uh, And so I would encourage you, even though this is something new and I recognize it's something added to your calendar and added to your schedule, to give this a chance to come tonight. It's going to be about an hour and 15 minutes long. Uh, I emailed you this week some additional details. Hopefully you got that from us. If you didn't get that from us, come to the Connect Desk. We'll make sure that you start getting emails from us here at the church. One of the things that we put in that email that I just want to make mention of is there is no child care. There, none. There is no preschool hall. There is no nursery. We think this is actually a good thing. Okay, We recognize parents. It means you're going to have to do a little bit of work. All right, The church understands We get that. Babies cry, small children wiggle and squirm, and sometimes get up out of their seats. And that is okay. We want to be a church where children feel comfortable joining in with what the congregation is doing, and they will learn. I promise you. I promise you. We have lots of parents in this room have been there, okay? They will learn by watching you. And this is going to be an opportunity once a month for them to be able to do that. And we're going to keep the pace of this service moving to where they're not going to have to sit for 40, 45 minutes like we're going to do here in the text uh, in Mark chapter 11 today. Okay, so I really hope we get to see you back here at 6 o'clock this evening for our first third Sunday evening worship service. I'll invite you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word. I'm going to start in verse 12. I am, this is 21 verses. I'm going to read it all for us uh, today because all of this connects together. And I want you to hear that as we kind of begin with an event that we come back to in the text later. Look at verse 12. On the following day, which is the day after Jesus had entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say for man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered, Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of believers here at Nansman River Baptist Church. Thank you for the encouragement that we provide to one another So we sing together and pray together and fellowship together and study your word together. We pray, God, for our opportunity to do again tonight. I pray, God, that we would embrace this as a congregation. as just another chance for us to gather as the faith family here in this place. Father, as we approach your word now, we ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would reveal truth to our hearts, convict us of sin, Teach us of the person and work and authority of Jesus, our Messiah, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Here in the second half of Mark chapter 11, we see really the, connect, the collection of three stories one that forms a sandwich really for us with the story of the fig tree that helps us to understand what. Mark, why Mark is recording these events in this way for us. Our subject is the Messiah's authority. That's, that's where Mark begins Holy Week or Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. He begins with some stories that help us to understand the authority that he has to do the things that he is going to do and to teach the things that he is going to teach. This account includes a well-known and often misunderstood story from the life of Jesus. One of the most famous events in the life of Jesus is his clearing 
the temple, sometimes called cleansing the temple. That's the heading in uh, my Bible. I will remind you that the headings in the Bible are not Bible. That's put there by modern publishers. I'm going to make the argument that Jesus isn't cleansing the temple. He's doing something far more important for us here in this text. But this is one that even outside of the church, people often know because it stands as somewhat unique. We get to see here both in the story of the temple and connected to it, the story of the fig tree, a side of Jesus that we don't often see. Here in the temple, it seems as if Jesus is angry and in his anger is, well, throwing a bit of a fit in the presence of, well, everybody as they gather for the Passover in Jerusalem. Often, as Christians then become angry at things in their own churches or our own Christian communities, we appeal to the anger of Jesus from Mark 11 and say, Jesus cleansed the temple and Jesus overturned the tables. And so that's what I'm doing here. We, we're not Jesus. And probably don't always have the same motives that Jesus had here. Remember, Jesus is perfect, sinless, the Son of God. And so Jesus is entirely pure in his motives in all three of these accounts. We'll need to remember that as we move through them. The main idea of today's sermon is that Jesus has the authority to grant full and total access to the Father, to all who recognize his messianic authority. What we're going to see is that Jesus is the sent one of God. That is what the Messiah, who the Messiah was, the sent one, the one sent from God to save his people. And Jesus, whose authority is demonstrated and questioned here in Mark 11, has as the Messiah full authority to grant access to God while others restricted it. Jesus opens it for us. We will see that here in these accounts. First, the Messiah's authority to abolish and replace temple worship. Now, some of you are already concerned by some of the words that I chose, and I do choose my words carefully in these sermons that I prepare for our Lord's Day services. And so I'm using these words intentionally, that Jesus isn't just kind of cleaning up some corners of the temple and some practices within temple worship that he needed to address. Jesus is abolishing something. But not just doing away with something that is old. Jesus is replacing it with something that is eternal and new. And as we walk through particularly the stories of the fig tree that surround the, uh, the temple experience and what Jesus does in the temple, I hope that we come to see this from the text. This text begins with Jesus cursing a fig tree which sets up a visual display of his messianic authority. So the first thing that Jesus does on his way into Jerusalem on what would be the Monday of Holy Week, the last week of his life, he does something that seems somewhat out of character for us. Look back with me in these verses. 
Verse 11, on the following, or verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, so Jesus had gone out after the triumphal entry, we're told, uh, over the Mount of Olives to the, to the east side of the Mount of Olives where a small town of Bethany, he had friends there he was staying with, and he had come from Bethany, and apparently his friends hadn't fed him any food, and so he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, it's important to note that all four gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell this story differently. Matthew compresses the story of the fig tree into one event that follows the clearing of the temple. Luke omits the account entirely, but includes a parable earlier in Jesus' pilgrimage to Jerusalem about a fig tree that we will consider in a moment that that provides the same point. John also, like Luke, omits this story completely, but also moves as John does. John is not telling a linear story. If you're reading the Gospel of John, please know that. John moves um, the clearing of the temple to very early in Jesus' ministry for theological emphasis. When we see variation like that between the gospel authors, we need to ask the question, why does this particular gospel author record this story in this way? Mark sandwiches Jesus' experience of of clearing out the temple with him cursing the fig tree beforehand and then his disciples encountering and asking questions about the fig tree afterwards intentionally for us, making them inseparable events. What Jesus does in the temple and his interaction with this tree are connected This fig temple sandwich, which doesn't sound like a very appetizing sandwich, is very important to the Passion Week in the book of Mark. This is the only miracle of destruction that we have of Jesus. This is why I say it seems out of place somewhat for us. More so in the way that Mark tells this to us, that Jesus, hungry, sees a fig tree in the distance, goes over to it and gets angry that there are no ripe figs. It's really... The way the language works, you don't picture this fig tree as being completely barren. Picture this fig tree as just like minding its own business, doing what fig trees do, and that is ripening in season. And Mark makes the note for us, by the way, because different variations of fig trees um, bloom and bring forth their fruit in different places and different times. And Mark's writing to a a Gentile audience, so he makes this note in Jesus's location and time, it wasn't yet ready for the figs to come. They were likely on the tree during this time, small figs that were not yet ripe, that were hidden by the large fig leaves. And then Jesus curses this fig tree and says, may no one eat fruit from you again. And he says this, Mark tells us, in the the hearing of his disciples. Jesus is setting up a visual, real-life parable. It's what he's doing. Don't, we, we don't want to read too much into Jesus angry with a fig tree and what that tells us. Jesus is not acting out of anger here. He's preparing something here in the Gospel of Mark, a visual aid so that his disciples will understand more fully the events of the day. 
Luke, in his uh, record, which is extensive of the pilgrimage of Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, records Jesus telling this parable in Luke chapter 13. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig it, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So Jesus having already, and I believe both of these events are true and happened, Jesus both told a parable that Luke records of a fig tree and Jesus curses this fig tree that Mark and Matthew record for us. But this is a reminder to us that Jesus used these agrarian illustrations as an example of what is happening at the coming of the kingdom of God. That Jesus is ushering in something new. And in ushering in something new, destruction must take place. Things must be torn down, dug up, cut off at their root. And so while... Luke records it as a parable and Mark records it here as a setup for a visual story. That is exactly what is happening. So Jesus has cursed this fig tree and now they move on. We don't receive the lesson until later. Number two, Jesus physically confronts those who prevent temple access and pervert temple worship for personal gain. There are two things that were going on in the temple that Jesus becomes angry about. One is the is the there was, there was a uh, prevention of certain people accessing their areas of the temple. And two, there were people profiting off what was happening in the temple. Let's see what Jesus does, picking up in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. So this means they come over the Mount of Olives, the same path that he would have taken the day before. Jesus takes again, comes over the Mount of Olives, down in the Kidron Valley, comes through the Eastern Gate and into the temple, and he enters. And begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and seeds of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. And because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, there's a lot that's happening here in these few verses. First, there's some things that we need to know about the temple for us to be able to picture rightly what Jesus does and why Jesus does it. In Jesus' day, the temple that was in place in Jerusalem was known as Herod's temple. It had been for decades been under construction. Herod the Great had begun a construction in Jerusalem of an expansion, a vast, large expansion, and really rebuilding of the Temple Mount. Herod's temple was massive. It was surrounded by porticos that were held up by pillars that historians tell us that three grown men it would take to link their arms around these pillars. They were just that large. We don't often picture the temple nearly in the size and, and grandeur that it was in Jesus' day. The largest section of the temple was known as the court of the Gentiles. This included the porticos on the side. It was large because Herod was a Gentile and he wanted his section to be large. 
covered 35 acres. It was 50 yards by 325 yards. Now, I looked up, just for like comparison's sake, I looked up the, uh, you know, the, the, the dimensions of our property here. If you take the three parcels of land that our church owns, the main part here, the ball field on the other side of the tree. Some of you maybe knew, you don't know that we own that. We do. We own that ball field on the other side of the trees, and then we own this house back here. It's our mission house and that parcel in total is about 16 acres. We own a lot of property, but our property could fit twice again inside of the court of the Gentiles. It's that large. It was separated from the rest of the temple, which sat in the middle. So the court of the Gentiles was on both sides and in the front, and in the middle was the rest of the temple, kind of the temple proper, which included um, the court of the women, the court of Israel, which was for Israeli men, and then, the court, and then the holy of the holies upon which only the high priest could enter. And the temple was busy. Every day the temple was busy. But in, in this week alone, it would have been massively busy. Jewish historian writes that writing about the day of Jesus, about the time frame of Jesus, that it was not uncommon during Passover week, which this is happening during Passover week, that during Passover week, some 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed in the temple. That's a lot. <laughs> so, so there's a lot going, 250,000 in one week. And that's just the lambs. That doesn't count. That, that was the, the sacrifice for a family, right? But there were numerous other sacrifices that would need to be made from the poor and for women that included birds. There was money that needed to be changed because a temple tax was paid around this time, but it couldn't be paid in Roman coinage. It had to be paid in a shekel. And so somebody had to make that change for them. And all of this took place in the court of the Gentiles. So when we see pictures of Jesus clearing the temple, there's like two or three tables against the wall, you know, and there's a guy with three or four birds in a cage. Folks, that is not the scene. 35 acres with thousands of animals, likely hundreds of tables of money changers, that this was the busiest place in all of Israel. And it was necessary to have all of this stuff going on for people to be able to do what they were instructed to do in the temple, all of it in the court of the Gentiles. So no, Jesus doesn't clear out 35 acres, okay? Jesus does make a scene but probably just in one small section, and he does a couple of things. He overturns the, the, the table of the money changers because they were profiting off, by the way. There was a profit in changing Roman money for shekels so that people could pay the tax. They were overturning the, he was overturning the seats of those who sold pigeons, and pigeons were being sold for the poor and for women to be able to make their sacrifice. And he was blocking those who would seek to carry things through the temple. The temple in Jesus' day was so large that it was the way one would go from one side of the city to the other. You would just walk through. And Jesus blocks that. Now, 
again, he doesn't clear out the whole thing. This is highly symbolic. Even though it is a literal thing that Jesus does, he's making a point and he gets the attention of those to whom he is attempting to make this point. And he says two things in the midst of it. The first in verse 17, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56, 7, where Isaiah says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Now, I'm going to preach from Isaiah 56 tonight. So if you want to know what Jesus means when he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, I would encourage you to come back to our third Sunday evening service tonight. I'm going to be preaching from Isaiah 56. I'm going to unpack this more fully for us then. But for this morning, we'll simply note that the area of the temple designated for Gentiles was overtaken by Israelite necessity. The temple system would not have functioned without it, and yet it negated the reason that Isaiah says the temple existed so that all of the nations could come to God. The second thing that Jesus says is he says, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus here is borrowing from Jeremiah chapter 7, where Jeremiah says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. The money changers, those selling items, sacrificial items there in the court of the Gentiles were profiting off of it. And Jesus makes enough of a scene, does enough damage there in the temple to get the attention of those whom attention he is seeking. Back at Mark 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teachings. Now, let's just think about who these people are and who they represent because they are going to come to Jesus in a moment. Next, the next day, but in a moment in the sermon, and they're going to come angry. These people represent a group of people known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is important for this last week of Jesus' life because ultimately it is this group of ruling religious elite in Jerusalem that will try Jesus, turn him over to Rome to be crucified. The Sanhedrin was a group of mainly Sadducees, which was the ruling elite in the temp- on the Temple Mount. It also included some Pharisees, whose Jesus has had some experience with. The Pharisees were kind of the, the country preachers, if you will, in Jesus' day, and the Sadducees were the city preachers. The, the Pharisees controlled uh, what was happening in the, in the towns around Israel um, through the synagogue system, and the Sadducees controlled the Temple Mount and the high priest position. And, and this group of people, the, the, the position of the Sanhedrin in the day was Roman appeasement. They hated Rome, but they believed they could appease Rome by kind of keeping the peace. And, and, and everybody profits from it. Rome profits from it, and the elite profit from it. And so they are really concerned with maintaining the status quo. While they knew the people hated Rome, and probably in their own hearts they hated Rome as well, this group of people were profiting off of Rome being there because Rome trusted them to kind of 
do what they wanted to do. They had carte blanche. They could kind of rule in Jerusalem, particularly as it related to religion, and religion controlled everything in Israel, to, to however they wanted, as long as there were no uprisings. So some guy coming and blocking the doors of the temple and starting to turn things over and drive people out is really going to get to the attention of the people that want peace and calm as over a million have descended upon Jerusalem for Passover. All of this is happening in, in this moment. And Jesus is going to confront them. And he's not confronting them directly. He's confronting the system that has enriched them. But, and I think this is important for us to understand, he is not only confronting the system that has enriched them, he is confronting the system that was necessary for that number of people to be able to come in and pay the temple tax and to make their sacrifices. That this is more than just Jesus confronting the Sanhedrin. Jesus is in addressing an entire system that he, again, choosing my words carefully here, is going to abolish and replace. Now, after doing this, as Mark so often does, he gives us this just kind of abrupt moment of transition where Jesus departs from the temple, having parted ways with temple worship. We're told here in verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. So here Jesus causes this scene, and then as Mark so often does, he just, I think intentionally, says, Jesus went out. Now, during this last week of Jesus' life, three times we're going to be told, uh, this is the second of the three, that Jesus is going out. And at all three times that Jesus is going out, it's in the context of the temple. In the previous section that we considered last week, it ends in Mark 11, verse 11, where after Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, he looked around at everything and it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. That's the first time when they were told Jesus went out of the temple. The second time is here in verse 19. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The next time, we're not going to get to it till the end of February because it's going to take us a little while to get through Mark chapter 12. And then we're going to get to Mark 13. We're going to do all of Mark 13 in one Sunday, which begins like this. And he came out of the temple. The third example of Jesus coming out during this week, coming out of the temple. One of his disciples looked and said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There were great stones that made up the Temple Mount, unbelievable in size, a marvel. Herod's temple had been built and it was just marvelous. And the disciples looked to Jesus, not fully understanding yet. By the time they get to Mark 13, they'll understand more fully later. And, Jesus, and they say, look how great this is. And Jesus says, uh, all of these stones are going to be gone. What is Mark doing for us? By the only place that Jesus, that Jesus is said to come out of, ultimately leading to Jesus saying that all of it is going to be destroyed, Mark is showing us that Jesus is departing from the old so that he can institute the new. This isn't just, again, Jesus sweeping out some cobwebs of the corner of the temple and trying to address some abuses that were in place. He is addressing some abuses that are in place, but Jesus is fully, 
And this is going to be important for how we approach this last week of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is fully walking away from temple worship. We're never told that Jesus goes in and makes sacrifice. We're never told that Jesus does any of the things that, that they were supposed to do during this time of Passover. All we're told is that Jesus constantly during that week went out of the temple. Because something new is about to come into Jerusalem. And the lesson of the fig tree helps us to learn this. Because Jesus returns to the fig tree to illustrate that he, not the temple, should be the object of the disciples' faith. Pick back up in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, that's teacher, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So sandwiching the, the clearing of the temple is Jesus cursing this fig tree. And in Bethany, they wake up the next morning, they come back over, and Peter's just, you know, shocked. Look, the tree that you cursed. It's, it's, it's not just, you know, some leaves falling off of it. It is withered, we're told, to the root, that it is completely and utterly dead. The fig tree represents temple worship. There's, I don't believe there's any other way of viewing this, that, that the, there's an intentionality in the way that Mark is structuring this story for us, that we're supposed to associate what's happening in between the events with the fig tree with what the fig tree means for us. Jesus isn't simply teaching them about prayer, that Jesus had the faith that he could kill a tree. Why would Jesus want to use this tree to demonstrate that he just simply has the power to do that? No, that fig tree represents something far greater. It represents temple worship. It represents the sacrificial system. It represents the need of the people to constantly come to one place and give sacrifice to God. Jesus is doing away with this. And it is withering to the root. James Edwards, one of the, commentary, one of the commentators that I have read to prepare this sermon writes this. He said, what Jesus does in the temple goes beyond a purging or corrective act. It attacks the very commerce upon which the temple cult depended, laying an ax at the root of the temple as an institution. Together with the subsequent uh, events of Holy Week, Mark portrays the clearing of the temple not as its restoration, but as its disillusion. Like the fig tree, its function is withered from the roots. The lesson of the parable, this visual parable, living parable, now dead parable of the fig tree is that the temple is done. It has been abolished. 
but it is replaced with something. And what is it replaced with? It is replaced with faith. Jesus says in verse 22, have faith in God. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes it will come to pass. Then he talks about prayer. The anything you ask in prayer, if you believe, then he talks about forgiveness. All of these things connected to faith in Jesus. That Jesus is the replacement for the old covenant. Jesus is the replacement for the sacrificial system. Jesus is the replacement for the temple. He says in John chapter 2, and again, John does these things out of order for theological purposes. The Jews come to him saying, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And then John, like John does, helps us to understand. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Hear me, church. Jesus isn't just clearing out the temple. He is doing away with it and placing himself at the center of access to God. Jesus alone. He isn't providing some formula for us here to get what we want if we'll only have enough faith. He's providing for us evidence that he alone is the object of our faith and that forgiveness and a right relationship with God is the outcome of faith in Christ. It's not based off of some system of works. It is simply by believing that Jesus is now our access to God. That as God's Messiah, he has the authority to be this thing. I just want to make one quick note before we move on. We cannot have room in our theology for a restored earthly temple whose sacrificial system is either salvific or God-honoring. Jesus has done away with it. And there are people in, within American Christianity, within Western Christianity, that are partnering with people in Israel now and th- th- that are seeking to somehow take over the Temple Mount, which now is under Muslim control, and restore it to Jewish control and rebuild a temple and somehow think that that is going to be God-honoring. It is not. The temple is done. It's done. It's not needed. It's not necessary. And it would not be honoring to God if it was reinstated. Why? Because Jesus has replaced it permanently. We don't need a temple in Jerusalem. We have Jesus alone. Then those people whom Jesus got their attention show to us the unwillingness that some will have to recognize the Messiah's authority. This in two parts, just quickly. The ruling religious elite questioned Jesus' authority. Pick up in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, so this is the next day, walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do it, to do them? Now remember, they see themselves as the authority, because they were. They had authority. They had permission from Rome. That was pretty important, because Rome, this was in the Roman Empire. They saw themselves as the representatives of of God, right? These are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the people that controlled everything about Jewish life. 
And this is whose livelihood Jesus had threatened. And they are now blinded by the desire for power and control and the maintaining of the status quo. And so they question Jesus. They come to him the next day. You can imagine, they had a late night. Like they all got together. So we got to do something about this. So we're going to go confront this guy. And so they go and they say, who, this is, you should put this in, in, you know, modern vernacular. Who do you think you are? That's what they say. <laughs> Jesus, he, he answers them. The ruling religious elite are unwilling to consider Jesus' authority. So Jesus is going to do something here that's going to show their hearts to us. That's going to show that they are completely unwilling to actually consider the right answer to their question. Notice what he says. In verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, Jesus isn't being cute or smart here. Jesus is doing what rabbis did in that day. Rabbis often answered questions with questions so that their students could come to the right answer. That that was a common practice. And so Jesus is going to teach, is going to treat the Sanhedrin like students because they should be, okay? Verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? It's pretty easy. Jesus says, answer me this. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And so then Jesus responds, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus' simple question posed back to those that says, Who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? Jesus is like, Tell me what your thought of John is. Now, John is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the forerunner, really the last Old Testament prophet, even though he's in the New Testament, the final one to come and prepare the way for the Lord. And they say, Jesus, who, who, do, you, who do you say John is? And they instantly know, man, he's caught us. He, we're, we're in a quandary here. Because if we say he's from God, then we should have listened to him. And they didn't. I'm going to show you why they should have listened to him here in a minute. Or if we say he's not from God, they feared the people because the people really liked John. So they're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So they say, well, we don't know. We don't know. But we don't know is not actually the, the right answer. It is the right answer would have been, we are unwilling to answer you. Because in truth, they were unwilling to consider whether Jesus truly was from God or not. Because the answer to that question would have challenged their, to who they are and their position of authority. Now, why does Jesus point back to John? There are other questions Jesus could have asked that would have gotten to the same place. But Jesus points all the way back to John for this reason. Because of what happened during John's ministry. Mark told us in Mark chapter 1, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And we came out of the water immediately, saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. John's ministry leads directly into Jesus's and tells us who he is and by what authority he does these things. The authority that he has to do these things is because he is the son of God. He is God's Messiah sent to us. This is who he is. And some will choose to remain blind to this fact. So what? Have I placed my faith in Jesus' authority to offer forgiveness through his once and for all sacrifice? 
The question of cleansing the temple isn't some practical, you know, and I've heard churches use it like this, like, should we sell books out in the lobby or not? If the extent of our understanding of Jesus clearing the temple is, should the church sell books in the lobby or not, folks, we have missed the theological point of what Jesus was doing. The point of why Jesus does what he does, and why he demonstrates it to us with the fig tree, and why he answers the Sanhedrin in the way that he does when they challenge his authority, is to point to him as himself as the center of our faith, that he alone has the authority to take what was old and replace it with something new and become the new center. So the question that I have to ask is, have you placed your faith in that? Or is your faith still in some type of works-based, I can do it on my own, please don't make me question the status quo? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? In Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is very concerned with the sacrificial system in multiple chapters because he's writing to Hebrews, people who understood well the sacrificial system. And in Hebrews 9, the first, we're not going to read it all, uh, but in Hebrews 9, the first 10 verses, he, he establishes that God had established the sacrificial system and the things that happened there and, and the rituals that were performed and the sacrifices that were made and, and all the stuff that happened once a year and multiple times a year. Pick up with me in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Talking about the temple. He uses tent, talking about the tabernacle, but the temple replaced the tabernacle. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And we skip to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The author of Hebrews says, man, we sure sacrificed a whole lot of animals. And we had to come back, and we had to come back, and we had to come back 250,000 in one week alone. But the death of Jesus once and for all is an eternal sacrifice. And through it, he grants access to the Father for all who come to him in faith. Have you come to that saving faith? If you have not, put your faith in Jesus today, trusting that he now has entered into not a place built by human hands, not something marvelous and majestic that we could look at on this earth and say, look what we have done, but into a place in heaven where God is so he can make an appeal on your behalf. It is only through faith in Jesus's ability to do that, that we can be saved. Have you done that? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus, your one and only son, our Messiah, with full authority to save us, to abolish and replace a system that was unable to save, 
and to call us to faith in him alone. May we walk in that faith, we pray. Would you bring people to saving knowledge through that faith, we ask now. That they would no longer rely on themselves. They would no longer cling to their status quo, but they would trust in Jesus alone, who has all authority. Would you do that now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. If this is new to you and you say, I want to have that kind of faith, at the end of our service, I'll be out in our lobby, not far from where we sell books. And you could come and talk to me. I'd love to share with you how you can put your faith in Jesus, talk to you about how you can be a part of our church and encourage you to follow him in your life. For many in this room, we have put our faith in him. And so because of that, that we now worship him together. I want to ask you now to stand with us as we sing to him.